Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Well, welcome back, everyone. It's Kevin McCollum here at the Light Bears Institute podcast, and my guest today is Hope Washespack. Hope serves as our Director of Development. Today, we're going to talk about the topic of sin. She taught last night, and I know it was beneficial to the students, and you chose not to dive right into the definition of sin and sort of get right into sort of more of the textbook part of what you're teaching, but you had some uh, personal testimony of how this sort of idea of sin played into your own story. So why don't you start that and give us a version of that? Yeah, sin is obviously a heavy topic, and I think that Starting it that way was, let's get a little bit more personal. Let's talk about the real benefits of talking about sin. And so the way that I opened it up was just to kind of talk about my testimony a little bit. Looking at my background, I grew up in a Christian family. I never really doubted the existence of God. Heard the gospel hundreds of times, but yet I I never really cling to it. And I think that's because I just didn't understand the weight of sin in my own life. When I went to college at the University of Arkansas, I had an RA who was intentional with me and she started going through the Bible with me. And then she was, hey, let's let's start sharing this on campus, <laughs> which kind of took me aback. I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm comfortable with the the reading of scripture, but this is this is taking a little bit more of me and, and really kind of puts me out there as maybe more of a fanatic. And so in that process of her saying, okay, let's let's start to learn how to share the gospel, the first question that she would have me open up with was on a scale of, of zero to 100, if we were, were standing before God now and he says, how sure are you that you would, you would get in, what number would you have in your mind? And, and so that kind of took me, took me aback because I was like, this is a this is a tough question. And after debating it, the answer that I gave her was 90%. That answer in itself kind of shows you that I thought my sins weren't that big of a deal and maybe I could kind of work my way into heaven. And so I think that makes it a little bit more personal. I think as a culture, we're scared to say, this is black, this is white, and and let's sit in the, the weight of sin real quick before we get to the good news to say, there's a problem and how do you think you can solve it? And so I guess that was kind of the the tone I wanted to set last night was if we don't have a good understanding of sin, the cross doesn't seem as good because we don't realize that the big problem that's being solved for us. Yeah. And that waters down, I guess, our need for grace and our understanding mm-hmm. of really what the true gospel is, right? If if, uh, if we misunderstand the depth of our sin and really the consequence of that. So that's a, that's a great story. I think it probably relates to a lot of people as they press into you know understanding who Christ is, we kind of think, uh, you know, we're okay. We're better than most. But man, when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, there's this this reality. It's like, wow. I'm Well, and then when you sit in the weight of that too, you're like, really? I said 90%? Like, the, <laughs> golly, like at least say 50 or, you know, I mean, that just seems pretty, pretty arrogant. But yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it gives you this appreciation for man. I was at zero and Christ brought me to a hundred. So just quickly define, like, what is sin? Yeah. How does the sin affect us as well? So sin, I mean, the working definition that I think it's good to start with from a guy much smarter than me, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, he kind of defines it as any failure to conform to the moral law of God. And he breaks it out into three different areas, into act, attitude, and nature. And so I think this really gets to the depth that sin goes to. And so we break down those three different areas. The first one's act. This is what we most typically think of when we talk about sin in our culture. There are actions that are outside of us. If we go back to the the Ten Commandments, these would be things like 
do not lie, do not steal, do not commit murder, right? These are all things that are done outwardly. But this definition takes it further than that. It also gets to attitudes. And so these are really our issues. I mean, we see this in the Ten Commandments as well. The the 10th commandment is do not covet. Well, that's not an outward action. That is, do not be jealous. Do not want something that someone else has. And that that's at the heart level. We also see an example of this really in Matthew 5 when we're at the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus. And, and he's telling the crowds, he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. So this gets back to the Ten Commandments. But then he takes it further and he says, but I tell you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you've already committed murder. And so it, it gets once again to this point of sin is deeper than just your outward actions. It's at the heart level. Don't you see that the, the depth of sin is so much greater? And he continues that with saying the same thing with about adultery. You've heard it say, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you have lust in your heart, you've already done that. And so that's the second part of our working definition of sin is this heart attitude. And then thirdly is, is nature. So we, we're getting down to the essence of who you are as a person. We're sinful. Sin drives us. And we see this, Paul talks about this in Romans 7, 8, and he's talking about just struggling with sin himself. And so in Romans 7, 8, he says, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. And so it's interesting there because his wording is saying sin created sin. The sinful nature created this heart attitude of of coveting. And, and so really there's just this root in all of us that it is driven to sin and it's a part of who we are. And so that's kind of the working definition we had. And I think really what gets to that nature piece is it's anything that we're treasuring above God. Yeah, we just talked about anxiety on a podcast and that com- comes up as well, right? When we long for things we can't have, we long for things that by nature we shouldn't want, but we do because of our fallen nature. It's an idol, you know, before mm-hmm. God, and that, that leads us into all kinds of you know bad behaviors or or bad attitudes, and because of the nature. And um, you you see in what is it, you know, that in Jacob and Esau sin is crouching, right? Mm-hmm. There's this image that man, there's something about you. There's fallen nature that's just waiting for any opportunity to to create the attitude and the action, you know, that that doesn't please God. So yeah, great definition. And, and you you referred to the Ten Commandments, obviously the moral code. I mean, just that alone is pretty convincing to all of us that we can't live up to that. But boy, you added Matthew 5 and the ante goes up, you know, exponentially right. at that point. And I remember I was in a group of guys, many of them unchurched and decided that we'd read through several passages of scripture together and memorize a lot of scripture together. And that we started with the Sermon on the Mount. And I remember the first meeting after we read the Sermon on the Mount, just, hey, guys, what'd you think? And boy, it was a long silence. Nobody wanted to answer. And finally, one guy says, I can't do this. Like, this is hard. Mm-hmm. Like, when I listen to Jesus' teaching Sermon on the Mount, I can't live up to that. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's exactly the that's point. That's the point. Right? Yeah. So. Which is why I think, you know, we talk about sin and people are like, oh, great. Here comes the guilt trip. It, it's it's hearing that that Matthew 5 will like, well, I can't even be angry in my heart. And sometimes our reaction is to have this, I think it's Matt Chandler that said like a white knuckling attitude towards sin of like, okay, if I just try harder, I'm realizing my sin is deeper, but maybe if I just try harder, I won't have anger in my heart. And that's not the point. The point is you're not going to live up to it. So let's run to the cross and then let's, you know, try to fight back through the power of the spirit against these sins. And so I think that, yeah, just what you said, that's the point. The point is we can't do it. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned nature. So let's go to another passage that you talked about 
last night in Genesis, Genesis mm-hmm. 3 particularly, a big event happened that we need to look at that actually changed our nature and then we're born into that. So speak about Genesis 3 and why did you pick that last night and why is that a pretty key thing to understand in this idea of sin? Yeah, I think it's pretty key just because it's where we see sin enter the picture. I think it's a pretty well-known passage. I mean, you, you see a lot of cartoons that kind of show Adam and Eve eating this apple. And I think there's this conception of the sin really came down to we ate this apple that looked desirous and, and we wanted and then God let sin enter the picture. But it's just so much deeper than that. If we look at Genesis 2.15 kind of through 18, it, it's where God's giving Adam this command of do not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think that it's interesting that it's called that. Like, why isn't it just called the tree of evil? But what really represented and what the whole sin was about, it was man not trusting God's character, saying maybe he's withholding from me. And so the tree represented who declared what was good and what was evil. Up until this point, we've seen that God is creating. He says, let there be light. There was morning and there was night. And that was the first day. And then what does he say? And it was good. Um, And so we see this pattern of God going through creation and he's the only one that's declaring what is good and what is not good. And the only thing that he said that is not good is that man should be alone. Um, And so what the tree represented was up until this point, God has been the only one declaring these things. And the man by eating the apple said, you know what? Maybe I want to declare this for myself. Maybe God is withholding from me and I I want that power for myself. And so it's interesting. Satan's kind of, tempting Adam and Eve by saying, you could be more like God. And in a sense, he's kind of right. Like God is the only one that declares what is good and what is evil. And and so by eating the apple, we did become like God in a way, but the falsehood of that is God does not know evil experientially, but now man does. And because we know it experientially, we have a relationship that is severed from God because he cannot be associated with evil. And so this this passage has a lot more to it than just an apple being eaten, but it really gets down to us not trusting God's character. And I think that's the root of all of our sins. We decide for ourselves, maybe this will be better for me than um, God's moral code. And so it, it really gets to the heart of a lot of what we experience today. And we relate to it now, right? Because we still want to determine for ourselves what's right or wrong, what's good or evil, what's right for me and right for you. We have this you do you culture, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, hey, you know, whatever's in your essence of inside of you that says who you are, that follow that and that's good enough for you. And just don't tell me what I have to do. And so we we have this sovereign territory that man has been, you know, really wrestling with and, and trying to defend ever since the fall, right? And we it just it packages different ways. But it's the same root, isn't it? And 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 so speak to that actually the the consequences of that that act by Adam and Eve on mankind, and then just in general maybe transition into what are the consequences for sin in our own life? Yeah. So Adam, it was the the original sin, right? Him eating the apple, kind of making this declaration of rebellion against God. But there was a lot of implications for it. Um, him being you know the father of mankind. Because he sinned, it wasn't just him that sinned. Now, as humans and as, you know, his descendants, we all struggle with sin. And so there's this theological concept that really talks about an inherited guilt. So Adam sinned, there's separation from God, but because Adam sinned, now we are all guilty. I mean, this is kind of a hard concept, especially when we think about the you do you culture. We think about living in a a culture maybe where we're more individualistic. It's a weird concept because it's saying because of Adam's sin, 
me hope I'm guilty. And, and so it seems unfair, right? It kind of makes us want to protest of like, well, how, how can I be guilty for what someone else did? Um, and so there's several arguments for that. I mean, you know, there's certain people who will say, well, if, if you were in the garden, Kevin, like you would have done the same thing Adam did. Or to say, well, it, it's kind of a mute point. Like both you and I have voluntarily committed sin. And so we're guilty anyway. So who cares if it's inherited or not? But I think that if we protest to this concept, I think the best kind of explanation for it is if we're saying, man, it's not fair that the guilt that Adam had is is passed down to us. Well, then we also should say that it's unfair that Christ's righteousness is passed to us. And so the sinful nature is there, there's a guilt piece of it that's passed to us. And there's also just a corruption an inherited corruption that's passed to us. Um, and, and so that really just kind of gets to this point of we have the sinful nature now, you know, we, we're not all born good. And then we kind of choose We're we're all have this bent towards sin. And, and you can see this in, I think a really common example of this is kids. If anyone's had kids or babysat kids, you don't sit a kid down and you say, hey, listen, this thing's going to happen. It's really going to frustrate you. And you know what you should do? You should hit your sibling. That sinful nature is there. And as a culture, we want to say like, no, we decide if we're good or if we're evil. But yet from conception, we, we have this bent. And so the implications of Adam sinning in the garden, man, and there's so much further reaching than just him now being sinful. Man, we all have inherited implications from that as well. Yeah, you, you made a great point. And it, all, it just puts on display the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Christ's redemptive work for his people, right? That we can have that imputed through us. Like he can die on the cross as the second Adam, mm-hmm. right? Living his life perfectly. So it was so important to us to understand that Jesus walked out in this world in a perfect manner, not disobeying the Father in even attitude or, you know, or action. And so therefore fulfilled that covenant, if you will, that he made with Adam at the beginning. So Christ earned the right to be our second representative, second Adam, and then chose then to take sin upon us, even though he had no sin. So, I mean, what a great thing. Like just talking about sin puts Christ on display, right? Right. I mean, just this conversation that just lifts up his grace and, and goodness. I love how you you tie, you know, sort of the fall of man to sort of the the resurrection of man in Christ, which I think is pretty awesome. And and you mentioned that we all deal with it. We all see it. Romans one, it was a, a chapter that you got into. Uh, maybe tell us, I guess it speaks to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe tell us um, kind of what's in Romans one and how it speaks to this topic of, of sin, maybe, you know, and why you chose it. Yeah. So I, I use this uh, passage really because I think it kind of points to how the sin nature plays out in our lives. And so I think by kind of hitting on that a little bit more, it gets more to the sinful nature and it kind of gets to this underlying question of, man, can humans do any good? Which is a, it's a tough question. So in Romans 1, it, it kind of just reiterates, if you're looking through verses 21 to really 28, uh, what Paul does is he just he was pounding into this concept pretty repetitively. I would say four or five times in just that those short number of verses. And he keeps saying, man, we have exchanged the glory of God for images. We have exchanged the truth for a lie. Um, and he really kind of gets uh, to the point in verse 28 when he says, man, we didn't even think it was worth having the knowledge of God in our minds. We didn't approve of it. 
and we didn't think it was worthwhile. And so the pattern that we see in these passages is, man, we exchanged the truth for a lie, and so then God gave us over to our sin. And so this is the sinful nature, is that we didn't even approve of having the knowledge of God in our minds. And, and so really what we, we see is that in our culture, whenever we say, man, not committing adultery is a good thing, right? It's a pretty well-known concept, believer or not, right? It is good to not commit adultery and, and hurt your marriage in that way. Um, and so there's a lot of societal pressures around that. But the really the, the nut of the question is, if someone does not commit adultery, which we would, I, I, in a general term, say is a good thing, um, but if it is not done with the motive of expressing our value of God and saying, man, God's moral law is what is good for me and I want to express my value of him by obeying this, then is it actually a good work? And I think the Bible would say no. If you look um, a little bit further in Romans fourteen twenty three, it says that anything that doesn't come from faith is actually sin. The same thing is kind of hit upon in, in Hebrews eleven six 6, when it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so we hit on this to not, not to get into this debate of what's a good work and what's not. But I think the point is, back to that scale of zero to 100, is there an amount of good works that I can contribute, even if it's little, and then God's usage of Jesus in the sacrifice of the cross kind of hurdles me over this benchmark? And the answer is no. Before Christ, there's no good works because we don't have faith. and We're not expressing our value of God. We don't approve of having the knowledge of God in our minds. And so is there any good work before Christ? And the answer is no. If we're looking at what the Bible says a good work is. Yeah, that's a great message and, and a hard one because we want to bring something to the table. Right. To me, that's a sign of someone who, when someone really understands the gospel fully, they look at themselves and they don't argue that point. Right. Pushing back, arguing that point is saying, I, I'm still wrestling here a little bit. I'm still kind of holding on to some of my innate goodness here. I got to bring something. I can't, I can't just receive grace. That's not, you know, that's not the right thing to do. You know, I have to, I have to bring an ounce of, of my own goodness to the table. So we kind of you know, force God a little bit to say, yeah, yeah, I see that good thing in you. You're just sick. Let me, let me strengthen that in you. So. Right. And I think that in some ways, I I think, and I, this was my experience, right. I I became a believer and then I was still struggling, right. With this, this sinful nature. And I was kind of like, man, why is this, it's still hard. And so I think that's why it, it is good for us to in community, hold each other accountable and and fight together, right? Because if you feel like you're on an island by yourself of like, why am I still wrestling with a sinful nature? It can be a little bit discouraging, but but that exists onward after Christ, but yet we have the spirit to help us fight those things off. Exactly. And I think it's important to people to understand that it's the power of sin. It's the slavery to sin that was broken. Mm -hmm. Christ set us free to, to pursue him before salvation. We couldn't pursue God. We weren't doing anything with sort of righteous ambition or for God's glory or, you know, as an affection towards him. And then so after salvation, that power of sin is gone. And therefore now we, in a sense, can choose good or evil, you know, or good or bad behavior. We have a, a, a will free to follow after God or, or stumble and, and go back onto ourselves. And yet if we can't break that pattern of sin, no matter what, that's a sign that we've never known Christ. Right. Not that we don't struggle, you know, deeply and people struggle with different, different degrees. So let's dive into just a little bit more. Like if I'm a Christian mm-hmm. and I do have, you know, this struggle, this, this uh, besetting sin, 
what should I do? Like, what, is, what does the Bible say to believers that have sin in their life? Yeah, this is getting to the more practical part of it, right? right? I mean, I think that up until this point, we're talking about the origin of sin, sinful nature. Okay, this makes sense. We need the cross, but okay, now what? You know, I'm, I'm still wrestling. And, and I think scripture has a lot to say about it. I think one of the main points is um, when you look at the life of um, someone before Christ and the life of someone after Christ, the power of sin, which I think is what you just mentioned, right? It, it's broken and we have the power of the Holy Spirit to combat against that. And so really, I think that if we look at Galatians 5, it kind of hits on this a little bit more. And so Galatians 5, 16 through 18, it, and it says here, So I say, live by the Spirit so that you do not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not know what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And so I love this passage because if we look at that last verse, it says, but if you are led by the Spirit. And once again, this gets back to the, do we contribute much to this? And, and that passage or the, the verb there is really passive. Um, it, it's not like, hey, if you follow you know, this race car around the track, um, it's not really going to help you with sin. But it's really this more of this language of if you hook up to the locomotive, it, it's this idea of abiding, abide in the Spirit, and then it will help you fight against um, the, the sinful nature. And so I, I really think that the, the first place that we got to go in, in scripture is abiding. Yeah, I think that's a really strong, great strong point. So I, I think it's it's abiding. It is being introspective, looking at um, the heart motives, what what is driving us to these sins, being quick to, to go to God in confession, praying for the root of that to be uprooted and, and praying for strength and help. That That's really the spirit of abiding, using scripture memory to combat against lies that we are fighting with. And, and then really the scripture also talks about the Lord disciplines those for their good. And so a part of this process is we are, we're struggling, we're, we're sinning, we're confessing, we're coming back to the Lord saying, these are the heart motives. But in the midst of that, we also have to kind of come to this point of acceptance of the Lord's discipline, right? In Hebrews 12, it talks about how it's for our good. And so there's almost an embracing of that. If we go back to the same analogy of a, a parent with a child, that discipline should be for their good so they do not continue to act in this folly. And so knowing that the Father's heart for us in the midst of this sin is, man, I do not want to see you to continue to walk in this because I know where it leads. And so it's almost an, an acceptance of his discipline and then a, a killing of the sin and the best power that we have. If there are certain situations that lead us into sin, man, it is it is back to the Bible passage of like, cut off your arm if it's causing you to sin, like gouge out your eye. It, it, it's strong language, but, but there's an activeness on our part of saying, man, this situation is continuing to cause me to sin. And so I will put in my effort to kill it. And then by the power of the spirit, it's really uprooting that sinful nature and combating against what we are struggling with in the flesh. Well said. I think um, if I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a Christian. I mean, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, you know, kind of 90% uh, hope back in early college days, <laughs> right? Um, 
What about a person in that condition? What do they do about their sin? How are they to approach their sin? What hope do they have? Yeah, so I I think that what we see with the impact of sin, right? Sin impacts us before Christ, after Christ, um, really in, in every stage in this life. And so I think that if you look at the impact of sin, really there's three different areas that we see that sin has an impact. Um, there's a penalty element. There's a power it has over us. And there's a way that like just in the world around us that there's a presence. And so if we are looking in the life of a an unbeliever, the penalty of sin for an unbeliever is eternal separation from God. God, because of his righteousness, cannot have evil in his presence. And so what what does the hope that an unbeliever has? Well, we're not contributing anything to our salvation. And so without Christ, there is separation from God. And I think that you once again, in our culture, there's a, a negative stigma of like, well, if God is a good God, how could he send someone to hell? And I think really the question is, how can God being all that he is in his holiness and his righteousness, how could he ever let a sinner into his presence? Um, and the answer to that is Jesus. And so to just get back to the heart of your question, what is the hope for an unbeliever in, in just the reality of it is, is eternal separation from God. Sin has its full power in their lives and in the presence, which both unbelievers and believers kind of have around them is we are hurt by other sins. The world is fallen. And that is why we say, come quickly, Lord. So yeah, if someone is in that situation as, as all were born to and, and enslaved to sin, there's only one place to find grace and it's the cross. You can only go to one who lived their life righteously and is willing to impute that righteousness on yourself so that you can be the Father. So it, it comes down to repenting from that sin, turning to Christ in belief and faith, and, and walking your faith out with him in, in lordship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the power of sin is broken, and yet the battle of sin, as you said well, continues, uh, and yet he sends the Holy Spirit as a helper to fight that and sanctify us through that end to guarantee that we're his, even in the resurrection, even after death. And so what a hopeful thing as we think about sin and putting God's mercy and kindness on full display. It's a, it's a thing that causes us to long for heaven to, to shed this battle, the weariness of the battle of sin, but also not to lose heart in the midst of walking out this life, you know, in the, in the midst of sin that's caused by our own attitudes and actions, or as you said, just the presence of sin in the world, the brokenness of the cosmos and bodies that are falling apart and, and uh, ecosystems that, that are yeah. broken. It's an encouraging message. Who would have thought you could talk <laughs> about sin and end up encouraged, right? Right, uh, right. Great topic. And, and I'm, I'm reminded, you know, uh, Romans 5, 8, we know Christ died while we were yet sinners. And just to see his initiative in that. So just a no one can stand before him and boast. We know that from Ephesians. And so anyway, again, what a, what a gracious thing. So thankful that you taught. I hope that uh, it was good for you. It honestly was. It, like you said, sinful is a heavy topic, but I really think that when we get down into the implications of it, it really just draws us to the gospel. That is a That is why even as believers, we never get over the gospel because we can look to Christ's life and see how he lived perfectly we can look at our own lives and see how imperfect we are. And that's why we never get over it. That's what we should going back to over and over again. And I think that's really the spirit of us kind of going through this theology with our students is to say, man, these are these different topics, but 
all of them point back to Jesus. And that is the real encouragement in our lives. Yeah, amen to that. It's really great to have you in the studio. Uh, it was a great topic. It's one that I've been looking forward to, to know more about and just have this dialogue. Uh, I know uh, just talking to you that it's helpful for you to have to do all the study and the prep. It's always that way as the teacher. And I know that our students were blessed by it. So just thankful for your discipline and the amount of work you put into it. And uh, so again, just grateful. Hey, hope uh, you enjoyed listening to this podcast. Hope it was helpful. If we can do anything for you, if you have any questions about this, certainly if you want to know more about this Christ that we talk about all the time or the word that teaches you about him that we mentioned, the Bible, uh, reach out to us, um, emails, info at lightbearers.com or reach out to one of our staff. We'd love to talk to you. You've been listening to the Light Bears Institute podcast, a production of Light Bears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com. Thank you.